Thank you for making an effort to be here. Obviously, it took a little while for everyone to get here this morning. It was hard to get out of bed. The dreary weather outside, and uh, it's just part of part of life, right? Once in a while, it's difficult. But remember, next week is going to be even more difficult, right? Should be less difficult, but the time changes, so should be easier. If you show up the same time you did this morning, you'll be an hour early next week. So, did I get that right? Okay, all right. All right. I always get confused when it comes to time change the clocks. And next week is Slipper Sunday, so if you get out of bed and you just don't feel like getting fully, well, we want you to be fully dressed, but if you don't feel like taking off your nice warm slippers, you can leave them on and just come as you are and, you know, wear them flannel pajamas and... You know, whatever, just to stay warm. So that's next Sunday. Bring some comfort food. We'll stick around for a, a lunch dinner. And that'll be a um, lunch dinner. A, a lunchtime meal. And uh, that'll be a fun time as well. So plan on that next week. Don't forget to set your clocks. Back. You fall back. Right? Okay. We're in the middle of a series entitled, entitled Church Blueprints. And um, this morning we're going to be dealing with, uh, some of the passage that we'll deal with is, is fairly simple, fairly straightforward. Um, there's a couple of the uh, verses in this passage that are somewhat difficult to deal with and somewhat difficult to understand. And so as we dive into them and, and, and look at them, I want you to be open-minded. I want you to be, um, well, obviously I don't want you, you would probably, probably wouldn't be here if you were closed-minded. Um, but I want you to stay, uh, stay with me, and um, we'll, we'll do our best to get through it the best we can um, and try to understand it uh, so everyone, everyone can understand it. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. He was working with a congregation in, the church, in a town called Ephesus, and uh, Paul's writing this letter to Timothy to help Timothy do church God's way. He wanted Timothy to do church God's way. And that's what we're here about um, this morning as well. We're looking in a a sense at God's blueprints for the church. If we look closely into his book, we'll be able to visualize uh, the Lord's church and what it should look like. The first part we saw that Paul's warning against bogus Bible teachers and how the Bible can mess you up if you aren't careful. Last week, we took a good look at at where Paul was coming from when he wrote this letter from a place of feeling, wow, God's mercy and grace has been shared with me. I don't deserve it, but it's been shared with me. He wants Timothy to know that, uh, that it's God's grace that we exist and God's mercy that, that we do this. He was once a sinner and now has been saved by the mercy and, and through the grace of God. But once again, because I'm not content to just be close to bullseye when it comes to church. I want us as a congregation to be the bride of Christ. I want us to be accurate when we build the church. And you all understand this, but, but when I talk about the church, I'm not talking about a building. I'm not talking about four walls. I'm talking about those called out, the followers of Jesus Christ, those here at the church at Loveland. We're the church. We're not, we're not a, a building we're a people. That's where we want to be. Even when I talk about the blueprints for a building or a church, I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about a people. I'm talking about loving people, building people into the community that God wants us to be. And that's what's called the church. 
Like I said, the passage of Scripture we're going to pa- cover today is uh, somewhat straightforward at the beginning. And then, and then there's a place where it becomes more difficult, a little more difficult to understand. And so be ready for that. I think the point of, of today is really just to understand um, it's not to agree with my particular interpretation of Scripture. But it's to understand that any time we dive in and read and study God's word, we want to accomplish agape type love. A love that is unconditional. A love that goes beyond just, hey friend, how you doing? It's a sacrificial type love. We want to get to that. And when we study this passage of scripture, we want to get to that same result. The problem often is that not every Bible passage is very clear. It's not always crystal clear. Some people think that the Bible is completely open to interpretation and that there's really very little in the Bible that can apply to us and, and, and work in our lives. Other people, on the other hand, think that the Bible is 100% clear and it's easy to understand and they just, they just take every tidbit of it and apply it directly to their lives. I would say that one in a thousand is not clear. But the 999 that should be obeyed, that's, that's perfectly clear. The real story is this. Two perfectly well-meaning Christians who dig into their Bibles in the same passage of Scripture may come up with two different interpretations or two different kinds of results out of those same passages of Scripture. There are a few passages in the Bible that I don't really have a clue about. I don't know how to interpret. I, I'm not completely clear on it. I don't spend much time in those places. Today's message is about as close as I get. After this series, I'm going to start a 10-part series in the book of Revelation. And even though these, there are parts that we understand and learn about, but I have, don't have a clue. And the, the first message is going to be entitled, I don't have a clue. And the next one will be uh, a two guesses and a whole bunch of speculation. What do you think? Would you come and, and listen? <laughs> Might be kind of interesting. Too often we argue over the, over the unclear and ignore the crystal clear. We get so caught up in discussing this stuff we don't understand. We even discount the stuff that we do because of the ones that aren't perfectly clear. That's a problem. We don't know how to agree to disagree either. We think that if, if you're going to be my brother in Christ, that we have to see eye to eye on every subject, event, and biblical passage of Scripture. You do understand that Jesus was not a Republican or a Democrat, don't you? It's the, it's the one that's, that we have become really passionate about, the ones that really, we really care about, and that we think the consequences, reality of the truth are, are really in them. Those are the ones that we have a hard time agreeing to disagree on. The ones we don't care about, those are easy to agree not to disagree, or agree to disagree, rather. So, so there's the problem. Now let's go into these passages of Scripture. Uh, we're in, in 1 Timothy. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, we're going we're to focus on the last part of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. Do you know where 1 Timothy is in your Bible? It's with a bunch of other T's. It's very close to the end of your Bible. And I'm not going to 
put all of the passages of Scripture up on the, up on the screen this morning. A lot of the ones that we cover in 1 Timothy are going to have to be, we're going to have to rely on your Bible. All right? I kind of call it a mark it up, a mark it up series. If you like to highlight stuff, you like to write in your Bible, this is the time. All right? You, you write right in the margins. If, you're, if your app will let you, you, you highlight and you write right in the margins of your Bible and try to help you understand what's going on. First, let's talk about the easy stuff. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is, a, this is how a good start goes bad. This is where it starts, right here. We all mean well. We all want to do what's right, correct? It's just sometimes we just get distracted and we just get off course once in a while. Timothy's trying to, or Paul's trying to help Timothy here. Let's, let's read 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Before we do that, let's look to God in a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for bringing us together this morning. I thank you for every person that made an effort to be here today. And I hope that as, as we uh, worship together, as we come together and sing songs, and we have communion together, and we listen to your word, that God, that we will be building each other up. We'll be encouraging each other to stay at this fight and to stay on track where God wants us to be. God, please help us as we try to learn from Paul, as Paul's teaching Timothy, how to do church. God, help us get these blueprints in our heads and in our minds and start participating the best we know how. God, thank you for this opportunity today. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How a good start goes bad. I think we stop trusting God and we stop, we stop obeying God. Look at 1 Timothy 1 verse 18. It says, Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you. Based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier, may, may they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. Verse 19, cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Hymenaeus and Alexander are two examples. They, they threw them out and handed them over to Satan so they might learn not to blaspheme God. Here's the pieces or parts of this passage that I want you to highlight. I want you to underline whatever you want to do. That first one is, is cling to your faith in verse 19. Cling to your faith. What are we talking about there? Clinging to faith. That's trusting God. That's putting our wholehearted trust in God. And second, keep your conscience clear. How do you keep your conscience clear? Well, you obey God. That's how you keep your conscience clear. First of all, we need to trust in Him. Secondly, we need to obey Him. I think many of our hang-ups with Scripture are the reality that it's just... We're just not, we're not trusting God. We think that we know better than Him. If we simply trust Him and obey Him, things will go much easier. If you want to win spiritually, trust in God and obey what you know to be right. Think about the last time you felt shipwrecked spiritually. It may have been yesterday, it may have been this morning. It may have been four or five months ago. It may have been four or five years ago. Think about a time when you felt shipwrecked, spiritually speaking. What was going on? Would trust in God or obedience to God have fixed it? I guarantee it would have. 
if we fully put our trust in God and obey him completely, we won't be shipwrecked. If you want to win spiritually, trust in God and obey what you know to be right. We sing an old hymn, not very often. We used to sing often. It's called Trust and Obey. I want to read you the words to this song. Think about it. Try not to sing it in your head because when you sing it, it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other or it goes through your head and just kind of processes and your mind goes in, in weird places. So try not to, I'll try not to sing it. It's hard not to break into song when you hear these words. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil hath doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows, for the joy he bestows, are for them who will trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet we will sit at his feet or will walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Man, I wish... I wish like everything that I could jam that song in your head, make it play over and over and over and over again in your head each and every day because that's what it's all about. If we can trust and obey, things will fly a lot differently for us. Jesus says, or God says, we can't, tr- we can't, we can't please him without trusting him. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, no one can please God. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he is real and that he rewards those who truly want to find him. Hebrews 10.25 says you should not stay away from the church meetings as some are doing, but you should meet together and encourage each other. Do this even more as you see the day coming. If we decide to go on sinning after we have learned the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. Trust and obey. You know the truth. It's being shared. We can't go on sinning. God wants us to, in obedience. What happens if we do? 1 John 1, 9 says, But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. Church, I want us to call it like it is. Are you big enough to call it like it is? 
God's a big enough God. He, he, can, he can forgive it. He is always faithful. We are the ones that need to call it sin when it's sin. I'm not talking about calling out sin in other people's lives. That's easy. I want us to call out sin in our own lives. In our own hearts and minds. That's where we need to call out the sin. Preacher, I thought you said this was the easy stuff. Well, it is. It's easy to understand. It's very simple. Trust and obey. It's very simple. It's not very easy, but it's simple. So some more easy stuff. Look down there in First Timothy chapter 2. Follow along with me in your Bibles. First Timothy chapter 2. This kind of gives us what to pray for and why it's important. All right, look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that, so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to, be, and to understand the truth. Verse 5, 4, there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, this man, Jesus Christ. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. Who do we pray for? Well, we pray for everyone and everything. We kind of did that on Wednesday night. We even took that next passage of Scripture where it says, pray for the kings and all those in authority. We prayed for the elections. We prayed for those that are running for president. We prayed for those that are their candidates that are, that are trying to win office in our, in our country. We need to pray for those. It's not just about us. It's about everyone and everything. I think oftentimes I go to prayer and it's, it's all about me. God, bless me, bless this, bless me, bless me, bless me. He tells us to pray for everyone and everything. We want God's will to be done. I think we have a problem in the church as a whole. I think that uh, not just this congregation, but all, all religions have, have come to the point, or come to the, to, yeah, come to the, the idea that, that political campaigns and, and trying to change the world politically is what it's going to take. We've gotten involved in political causes rather than sticking with public prayer. Just as an example, there was a ballot measure about a mental behavior, um, behavioral health facility that's, um, I think it's called, I think it's 1A, I believe is the, is the, whatever it is on the ballot. There was an event here at the building. It had a political agenda. They were trying to get this, this behavioral health um, facility um, funded. And um, I was asked to set up this building, this room. Guess how many chairs they asked me to set up? All of them. They said we'll have between 150 and 200 people. Guess how many showed up? Almost 250 people. This room was packed. It was packed. About three days later, there was an interdenominational prayer meeting that was going to take place for the elections that were coming up. Guess how many chairs they asked me to set up? They asked me to set up between 10 and 15 chairs. 
God bless, there was almost 26 people that showed up that night to pray. But there's a big difference, isn't there? You see how people are excited and encouraged and just all fired up about a political issue. But when it comes to prayer, it's just nothing. Why do you think that is? I'm not saying that we shouldn't be involved in our community, our state, our country. Think about what happened in the first few decades of the church's existence. The gospel spread like wildfire. There were 12 men that took on the challenge of spreading the gospel. We can see from the history of the church that it was the strongest point in history. It wasn't because the church was marching up and down the streets trying to change the Roman government. It was because they were working to change the hearts of the individual Romans. They were trying to change the individual's hearts to God. I think we need more prayer in the church. What do we pray for? We pray for peace and quiet. We pray that that we will make it so that it's easier for others to come to Christ. God doesn't want to destroy everyone. God wants everyone to, to make it to Him, to be restored to Him. Ezekiel 33, 11, it says, As surely as I live, says the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so that they can live. Turn, turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? Pretty easy stuff, pretty straightforward. Here's some more. <laughs> Gets a little more personal, however. You notice how, you know, when we, when we have Father's Day and Mother's Day and we, we have a Father's Day sermon, it's pretty to the point. It's like, you dads, you better get shape up and get to it, right? When it comes to Mother's Day, what do we do? Oh, you guys are the greatest. I don't know why that is, but I think it's just because those guys are idiots and we just need to hear it like it is. Sort of the same thing today. What's a man to do? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. Look at what it says. It says, In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. Men, this simply means that we are to walk in an upright manner. We're to be doing the things that God wants us to do. This idea that we are lifting up our hands so that God can see that they are clean. Gentlemen, we need to wash our hands. Not literally. Well, sometimes literally. Corbin will at times, when he's caught messing with something he's not supposed to, he'll hide his hands. He'll come in and he'll have his... Do one of these numbers. He's got his hands back here behind his back. I'm like, uh, what have you been into? I just know there's something up. But when he's... When he's all clean and he's all good and he's behaving himself, what does he do? He's like this. He's got his hands lifted up to death, right? Because they're clean. He's, he's good. We get angry at God for not answering our prayer and opening the doors of opportunity for us. Maybe it's because our hands aren't clean. Men, we need to clean our hands. God says it even messes with our prayer. God wants holiness. He wants harmony. He wants us to work together. Mark eleven twenty five 25 says, But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. 
you feel like your prayers aren't getting any farther than the ceiling, try cleaning up your hands. Try ridding yourself of any ill will toward others. Let's not leave any stone unturned. Men, we need to have clean hearts. Not any stone unturned. Let's, let's turn them all over. Let's not hold on to some things. Let's say, well, yeah, God, you can, have, you can have this part of my life, and you can have that part, and you can, have, you can have all these parts, but God, this part right here, it's just, this one's mine. And you just got to leave this one alone for now. Is that fair? We can't ex- ex- expect God to open the doors and answer prayer if we're holding on to something. That's the, that's the easy stuff on this, in this passage of Scripture for me. This next part is a little more, a little more, I don't know, a little more squishy. It's not quite as solid in my mind. This next passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 9. So what's a woman to do? Found out what a man's supposed to do. Now let's talk about what a woman's supposed to do. 1 Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 9 with me. It says, I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent, appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman, who, the woman was deceived, and sin was the result. Verse 15, but, but women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. There are many battlefields... Many wars have begun in this passage of Scripture. Let me just try to answer a couple of simple questions to begin with. Is, is this about a woman or a wife? What would you say? A woman or a wife? Depends on your translation. But get it in your head. Get it in your head. What do you think it is? Is this about corporate worship service or is this at, about something at home? What do, you, what do you think? Let me read you two different translations and let, let, I'll let you decide. I'm going to back up to verse 8 because I can, kind of think it helps um, paint the picture a little bit. This is NLT. It says, in every place of worship, kind of sounds like church, right? I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God. How many of you saw everybody in here, all the men in, in the room today, lifting up their hands as we were worshiping and praying to God? Did we do that? Sinners. <laughs> Bunch of sinners. They should wear, okay, and it says, I want women to be, to be modest in their appearance and should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves the way they fix their hair or wearing gold or, or pearls or expensive clothing. Ladies, how many of you have, have expensive clothes on today? They're all going to go like this. Men, how many of your women have expensive clothes on today? Yeah, I know how much you paid for them pants. And they even have holes in them. It says, for women who claim to be devoted to God make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. 
I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. So, so what do you think from that passage of scripture? Are we talking about the church service or are we talking about something at home? From, from the way that reads to me, it sounds like we're talking about in the church service, right? It sounds like we're talking about here at the building where we're all together and we're serving God. Is this talking about a woman or a wife? It kind of comes across more as, as women as a whole. Like a woman, that's kind of what it comes across to me. Now, let me switch it up on you. The Common English Bible, the translation... Let me read this one for you. Same passage of scripture, same, same six or seven verses, all right? It says, therefore, I want men to pray everywhere by lifting up hands that are holy without anger or argument. Men to pray everywhere. In the same way, I want women to enhance their appearance with clothing that is modest and sensible, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, expensive clothes. They should make themselves attractive by doing good, which is appropriate, which is appropriate for women to claim to honor God. A wife should learn quietly with, in complete submission. I don't allow a wife to teach or to control her husband. Instead, she should be a quiet listener. Are we talking about a church service or at home? Kind of sounds like at home, doesn't it? Is this talking about a woman or is it talking about a wife? I get the impression from those same passages of scripture, this same verse, that it's talking about a wife. So I'm really confused. What's the deal? How can one translation, one group of scholars come up with one thing and another group of scholars come up with something that's completely different? And if, we, if one person read from the NLT and the other from Common English Bible, they could have some serious debate here, couldn't they? There are going to be some serious problems here. I think your answer is within the Greek language. The Greek language is different from ours in, in a lot of ways. And like, for instance, the word love, they have six or seven words that, that are translated the same word for us, love. In, in, but in this particular case, the word men and women are both husband and wife also. There's not a differentiation. Every time the word man is, is translated in the scripture, it could also be husband. And every time the word husband is translated in the, in the scripture, it could also be just man. Okay, so I don't know, if you want to dive way down into the Greek, you could really just kind of probably figure out some more stuff in there. But that's the basic gist of what we're, what we're after. Which is correct. I think they both are, and here's why I think so. If, if Paul would have been specific about talking about their, their corporate worship time, there would be some that would get the idea that this, this, this concept or this, this idea only applied or didn't necessarily apply at home. It only applied at church. If he would have been specific and said, this is the type of worship that you should do, only you know, when you're at services, this is what should happen. There'd be some wives that would would be taking some, you know, pants in the family and taking headship at home. If a husband and wife relationship is set up in a biblical way at home, do you think that the interaction and relationship between a man and a woman would be any different at church services? No, it would be the same. It would be a, a direct replication and direct reflection of what was taking place at home. It starts in the home and duplicated in the church, just like so many other commands from Scripture. My next question is, is this for, for back then, or is this for now? 
I think there are definitely some forever principles in this passage of Scripture. But for instance, when it said braided hair, do you really think that God doesn't want women to braid their hair today? Come on. I don't think that's a problem. I don't think that's an issue. I don't think that's what we're talking about here. And hence the reason there's something, I don't see any right now, but there's sometimes ladies braid their hair, right? That's not the whole, that's not the point. There are definitely some forever principles here. For instance, Eve seen sinned in deception and Adam followed with his eyes wide open. Men are to be leaders in their homes, not in a derogatory way, but as a servant leader. Women's modesty ideas are, are not meant to be specific, but for forever principle. should be modesty within a woman's life. Proverbs 31 says it's hard to find a good wife, but she's worth more than rubies. And this one is a contrast to me. Look at Proverbs 31 and verse 22. She, it says, she makes her own bedspread and she, she dresses in fine linen and purple gowns. The color purple, what was, what was that noting in, in, the old, in the old days? They were rich. They were royalty, right? So if women of old were commended for their dressing in clothes of royalty, why would God condemn us women, us you women looking nice today. I don't think he would. You see the difference there? There's definitely some forever principles here. But when it gets specific, we need to be careful. Proverbs 11 and verse 22. Look at this. Ladies, take a look. It says, a beautiful woman who lacks discretion is like a gold ring in a pig's snout. We have to step back and ask ourselves, why is Paul telling Timothy these things? And why did these things make it into our New Testament so that we could learn from them? Timothy was trying to lead a vibrant and growing church. And Paul was telling Timothy that these things would, would make it easier for non-believers to become Christians. And for the church to, to flourish and to thrive. If you ladies started wearing outfits that we... <laughs> that we try not to see on the red carpet in Hollywood and start dancing in worship songs the way, I don't even like to say this in church, Miley Cyrus does. Do you think these actions would make it easier for the gospel to spread? No, it wouldn't. Do you think it'd be easier for non-believers to come to see the love of Christ in that way? No. We'll dig deeper into the, in the next chapter about, about gender roles and, and what God expects in church leadership. I don't see any problem with women having teaching roles and bringing thoughts, even from the pulpit during services. Even leading ministries within the congregation as part of leadership, women play a vital role. There's so much more to be said. I mean, obviously, if you've got questions about these things, don't hesitate to ask. And we can dive into them and we can look at them more closely. Basically, I'm perfectly fine with you agreeing with me or disagreeing with me on how I interpreted this passage of Scripture. So what happens if we decide this is how we're going to take and apply this particular passage of Scripture and there are others that don't see it that way? What happens? 
Well, if they just don't get it, we have a choice. We have to, under, we have to decide if, if a, a simple passage of Scripture is, is black and white and crystal clear, then we need to divide over it. We need to say, okay, no, this is, this is what God's Word says, and this is the way we need to take it. But when it's not clear, I believe that unity is more important than, than uniformity. We need to be careful of those things. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, Don't waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourselves to be godly. Pretty simple. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 5 says, They will act religious, but they will reject the power that, God, that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. They might think they, they've got it. Folks, if you can find it in your Bible, and it's clear as day, black and white, God said this, and, and this is the way he wants us to act and respond to it. And someone is going exactly opposite of that passage of Scripture, that's where we need to draw the line. But when it's not clear, love needs to win out. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 2, it says, If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans, anybody claim that one today? Understand all of God's secret plans? Yeah, no. If I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. In our discussion groups, we'll discuss some instances where Paul addressed these types of issues with the church in Corinth, with the church at Rome. But here's the basis for all, all of it. We're going to blaze through these six passages at the end just to, just to finish off the morning. If you didn't hear anything all morning, I want you to focus on these, these couple of minutes. John chapter 13 and verse 35. It says, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How do you love the person sitting next to you? How do you love the person sitting across the room from you? How do you show the world that you love them? What have you done this week to prove your love for those in this body of Christ? Ephesians 4, 2 and 3 says, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Make an allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. 1, 5, we read it earlier. This is the purpose of my instruction is that all believers will be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clean conscience, and a genuine faith. 1 Peter 3.8 says, Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. 1 Peter 4 and verse 8 says, Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. For love covers a multitude of sins. And last but not least, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. It says, if people say, I love God, but hate their brothers and sisters, they are liars. Those who do not love their brothers and sisters whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And God gave us this command. Those who love God must also love their brothers and sisters. My interpretation of somewhat difficult passages not near as important as understanding our end goal, our end game. It is number one holiness, but also harmony. And the way we get that is to simply trust and obey God. 
And second, love on each other. Allow love to cover what it is that you see fault in someone else. Love on them. And uh, you know what? Most of the time, you're going to win them over. And uh, it, it works that way. Thank you for your attention this morning. I hope that wasn't too...